Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Good afternoon. Looks like you guys have had some food and feeling a bit refreshed. Welcome to our afternoon session. We're going to be discussing what is merit and helping you to understand this particular topic. And then we're going to be doing some other things this afternoon where I'm going to help you understand how to receive continued support on the path to enlightenment. And then we have an activity that you guys can participate in if you like. So just to transition from the topic that we were talking about earlier, which is what is gamma and how does it affect me and now moving into what is merit. The thing to understand is that merit is a wholesome type of gamma. So you guys learned about what is wholesome and unwholesome gamma. This is wholesome gamma. And one of the things that I usually say during our talk about gamma that I didn't say that I'd like to share here before we start talking about what is merit is one of the beauties about understanding the natural law of gamma, among other things, is that if you're able to be able to see that everything that you experience in life is a result of your decisions, either wholesome or unwholesome, whatever you're experiencing is a result of your decisions. If you're able to see that, then anything that's going on in your life that you don't particularly care for, it's just a matter of making different decisions, right? If there's anything about your life, you're like, gosh, I really don't like this thing that's, that's happening in my life. Or I really don't prefer for this particular thing to be occurring. You just cultivate wisdom, make different decisions, and now that changes. Whereas if you continue to think, I don't know that you think this way, but if you continue to think that what you're experiencing in your life is based on luck or fate or destiny or you know blaming other people for these things, you have no control or no ability to fix any of that, right? Because it's your destiny, it's your fate, it's good luck or bad luck, or it's other people that are causing you to feel a certain way. But if you can understand the natural law of gamma that every Everything that you experience in life is a result of your decisions. This is so empowering because now anything that you particularly don't care for in your life, learn wisdom, cultivate the wisdom, make different decisions, and now you'll experience different results in your life. And that's where you can clean up your gamma. You can clean up the unwise decisions from the past. So as you're experiencing unwholesome things coming back to you, figure out what decisions that you made that led to that clean that up and then that thing won't occur anymore. And that's where you might need to reach out to a teacher from time to time to be able to help you to cultivate that wisdom. And that's what we're here for. Okay. So this is a nice transition over to what is merit, which is wholesome gamma. I'm going to explain to you guys what this is and how to practice it. It may or may not be something that you've learned yet, but it's something that you will need to learn in order to get to enlightenment. So 
What merit is, is it's a readiness and taking action to frequently give something more than is strictly necessary, such as your time, effort, energy, financial support, or resources without any expectation of anything in return that supports the continued sharing of the Buddhist teachings, contributing to others' ability to attain enlightenment. This is what merit is. At the core of merit, it's actually generosity, which you're going to understand here in a moment. But this is what merit is, is helping to provide the teachings to other people through any type of time, effort, energy, or resources that you might be sharing. And this isn't something you're required to do. This isn't something anyone will expect you to do or ask you to do. But this is something that as you're learning and as you're practicing and as you're training your mind, you're seeing more and more truth in the teachings of the Buddha and you're seeing that it's helping you. You might decide like, wow, I'd like to ensure that these teachings are available for somebody else in the future. And that's where people might decide to support the teachings of the Buddha in one particular way or another. Some people might decide to sweep a temple or or clean a bathroom, or take out the trash, or some people might decide to offer a donation here or there to pay electric or water or meditation cushions or any number of different things. This is how you can use your time, effort, energy, and resources to help other people gain access to the teachings of the Buddha. And this is something that's been going on for 2,500 years. For 2,500 years, people have been sharing their generosity, which produces merit from the lifetime of the Buddha. They've been helping to support the teachings. So the only reason why you're receiving the teachings of the Buddha is because other people practice generosity, which ultimately produced merit. During the lifetime of the Buddha, he talks about merit in producing this wholesome gamma, and he talks about sharing with what's called the Aryan Sangha. The Aryan Sangha is the way to say the noble community. Okay, this word Aryan, Nazi Germany, took it from uh, the Buddha. Even the swastikas uh, that you guys have seen, that was actually a part of the Buddhist teachings during his life. He used that symbol, and then people in, in Germany took that and used it for themselves. But what the Buddha taught this Aryan Sangha translates to is the noble community. And he gives guidance on what this noble community is, and you're going to see his words here in a moment where he describes what the noble community is. And essentially, it's somebody who's in one of the four stages of enlightenment or practicing to get into one of the four stages of enlightenment. He taught to support these individuals because they're the ones who've cultivated a deep amount of wisdom to then be able to share teachings with other people that will help other people to be able to get to enlightenment. So an individual could produce merit by making offerings of food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care, time, effort, energy, financial support, resources, that would all produce merit when you're sharing that with the noble community. And of course, that's helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment too, as you're practicing generosity. So here's a little image that I use in order to help students to understand what merit is. Down here, this is practicing generosity, right? So that's what you're going to need to develop in order to get to enlightenment. We've talked a little bit about generosity so far, that you're giving and sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources without any expectation of anything in return. That's with anybody. That's generosity, right? Like I think some of you guys bought each other lunch. I've seen, or or you've shared your nuts, or you know you helped somebody get a glass of water over there. That's generosity. You didn't have to do that. It's sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources more than is strictly required in any given situation without any expectation of anything in return. So as you guys are helping each other, I saw yesterday when we had a lot of students here. Some of you guys shared your mats. You took your mat and you gave it to somebody else. That's generosity, right? You're sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources more than is strictly required. So 
everything that I'm talking about now is based in generosity. But then what you do is you ask yourself this question. Was this an offering to a teacher to support the continued sharing of the Buddhist teachings, helping others to attain enlightenment? And if the answer is no, that it wasn't, well, you're receiving these benefits, right? That the mind is being trained to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and it's helping you to get closer and closer to enlightenment because you're eliminating the selfishness. You're eliminating central desires of holding on to things very tightly. So if you're practicing generosity and it's just with anybody and everybody, it is called generosity. But if your offering of generosity is to support the continued sharing of the teachings of the Buddha, the answer is yes. Well, you're still getting this benefit of eliminating craving, desire, attachment. But you're also helping others to gain access to the Buddhist teachings as they are continued to be available in the world to all beings. And it's helping you to generate wholesome results or wholesome gamma where you're eliminating any kind of selfishness or sensual desire. That's what we call merit. So following generosity to, yes, it's to support the continuation of the teachings of the Buddha. This is then what we call merit. And this is wholesome karma that's helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, but it's helping others to be able to get access to the teachings. That's what merit is. Okay. So now let me share some words of the Buddha with you where he's talking about various things related to merit. And now remember, when the Buddha is teaching to practice generosity and produce merit, he's not trying to enrich himself, right? He was already rich. He was a prince destined to become a king. He was a member of a royal family. He stepped away from that and he went into homelessness. So he's not teaching generosity in order to enrich himself. He was already rich. He's sharing with you what it took for him to get to enlightenment. He needed to practice a certain amount of generosity. And when he was in his last life, he practiced an extensive amount of generosity, just sharing the teachings for 45 years. That's a huge amount of generosity. But in his teachings, you can see where he's talking about his previous lives. And you can see that a generosity played a major role in him getting to enlightenment. He actually says it very clearly. He explains that one of the primary reasons why he was able to get to enlightenment by himself in his last life as a Buddha is because he practiced generosity in his previous lives so extensively. So he's not teaching generosity and producing merit because he's trying to enrich himself. It's to help you to be able to train your mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, but also to be able to support the teachings coming into the world for other people to be able to learn them and benefit from them. So here he's teaching about the noble community and who is it that you should make offerings to. This is titled, An Unsurpassed Field of Merit for the World. Monks, these eight persons are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutations, an unsurpassed field of merit for the world. What eight? The stream enter, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of stream entry, the once returner, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of once returning, the non-returner, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of non-returning. The arahant, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of arahantship. These eight persons, monks, are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutations, an unsurpassed field of merit for the world. 
Okay, so I'm going to pause here just to be sure you know who these four people are. Actually, eight people, but these four things. These are the four stages of enlightenment. If you remember back to Monday, if you were here on Monday, we taught the four stages of enlightenment, stream entry, once returner, non-returner, and arahant. Those are the individual stages of enlightenment. So the Buddha is saying anybody who's in one of these four stages of enlightenment, it would be wise to make offerings to them. Or somebody who's in the process of getting to one of these four stages of enlightenment. And it's not anything mystical or magical that's going to produce any benefit for you. The reason why the Buddha is guiding people to make offerings to these people is that it helps you come in contact with an individual who has deep wisdom to then be able to ask them questions to be able to get to enlightenment. Let's just say there was an ordained practitioner who is in a temple, who's smoking cigarettes, who's kicking dogs, who's gambling, who's maybe having sex with people, using drugs or alcohol. If you're supporting that person, then you're supporting those activities. But if you're supporting an individual who is in the first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment, they've made significant progress on the path to enlightenment. They have a certain amount of wisdom. You're going to need a certain amount of wisdom to be able to identify a person who's in one of the first, second, third, or fourth stages of enlightenment. And as you do, and you make offerings to this person, okay, you're maybe offering them some cookies or some food or some money or support, but you're able to sit down and talk with this person and ask them questions and get help on the path to enlightenment. So that's why he's sharing to support these individuals because it's helping you to get to enlightenment, but also by supporting these types of individuals, those individuals are now able to share the teachings that other people can get to enlightenment. So not only are you gaining the access to this person, but other people will have access to this person to be able to get to enlightenment as well. So the Buddha explains all of that here in this next part. He says, the four practicing the way the four established in the fruit. This is the upright community, composed in wisdom and virtuous behavior. That's where he's explaining, hey, these people have deep wisdom and they're a really nice role model because they have all this moral conduct that's going to be able to help you to be able to get to enlightenment. He calls his community the upright community or the straight community because during his life, there were multiple people who were teaching and claiming that it was their teachings that lead to enlightenment. So there were household practitioners that were supporting lots of different people who were so-called ordained or on the path to enlightenment. But some people were studying with different teachers who they weren't actually sharing the true teachings of the Buddha. But the Buddha was sharing his teachings because there's no physical characteristic that's going to tell you that this person is a Buddha. So some people knew he was a Buddha. Some people didn't. Some people didn't know that he was enlightened. So as people were supporting other teachers and other students, The Buddha knew that it was his community that was the upright community or the straight community, the community that was really, truly practicing the path to enlightenment. So he was encouraging people to support his community because he knew that they were the ones that were bringing the teachings into the world in such a way that other people could get access to them and then benefit through getting to enlightenment. And then he says, for people intent on sacrifice, for living beings seeking merit, making merit that ripens in the acquisitions what is given to the community bears great fruit. What he's talking about making merit that ripens in the acquisitions, this is you getting into one of the stages of enlightenment yourself. That by you producing merit and coming in contact with a person who's in one of the four stages of enlightenment, this is going to ripen in the acquisitions, allowing you to acquire one of the four stages of enlightenment. 
where he's talking about what is given to the community bears great fruit. That's because it allows the community to continue to deepen their understanding of the teachings. And now more and more and more people get to enlightenment. When an individual is making offerings to a temple or making offerings to a teacher, there's a small portion of that money that should be used or those offerings that should be used in order to provide for the basic necessities of the teacher, the food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care. But what the Buddha is talking about, what is given to the community bears great fruit, is that you should see a teacher giving these things back to their students, right? You should see a classroom that's neat and organized and has supplies and equipment to be able to help you to learn. You shouldn't see that when you're making offerings of support, either time, effort, energy or resources that a teacher is just pocketing that and enriching themselves. They take this very seriously here in Thailand. There was actually a ordained practitioner several years ago who was enriching themselves and they had Fendi bags, Gucci sunglasses. They were traveling around on a private airplane occasionally, like a chartered airplane and stuff. And the Thai people found out and they issued an arrest warrant. The person knew, so he fled and he went to America. And then the Thai people found out that he was in America and they submitted an Interpol warrant. And they had the American police arrest him in California and they extradited him back to Thailand. And then he went through the court system and he was found guilty and he was sentenced to 20 years in jail for pocketing this money. So the Thai people take it very seriously. If you're sharing these teachings of the Buddha and you're trying to help the community, yeah, you're going to need a little bit of money for yourself to buy your food and clothing and shelter and medical care and things like this. But there should be a certain amount of that that's coming back to the community in order to help to continue to share the teachings. So that's what you should see if you're making offerings to a person. You should see that they're actively involved in sharing the teachings with others because that's what your donations are supporting. Whether it's your time, your effort, your energy, your resources, it's supporting that person to be able to then share the teachings with other people. If you see somebody enriching themselves, this isn't what the Buddha actually taught. Okay, so this is one aspect of what the Buddha is teaching. Now, let me share this with you. When you're practicing generosity, this is helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, which is the cause of discontentedness and the cause of rebirth. So by eliminating craving, desire, attachment, through practicing generosity, you're eliminating discontentedness and you're eliminating the cycle of rebirth. The Buddha describes the selfishness that the unenlightened mind has. He calls it a stain of selfishness. These are the words of the Buddha. And you'll see that here in a moment when I share words with you from him. In order to get to enlightenment, an individual needs to eliminate that pollution or fetter of doubt. This is something that we talked about on Monday. I don't know if you guys remember this, like where you have doubt about the Buddha, doubt about the teachings, doubt about the community that you're part of, doubt about your teacher and their ability to help you get to enlightenment, or doubt about your own ability to get to enlightenment. Eventually, you will eliminate doubt. If you keep investigating and examining the teachings, you reflect on them to independently verify them and you practice them, you'll eventually eliminate any doubt that you have. You'll know with 100% certainty that these teachings are leading to an improved condition of mind and an improved condition of life. And as you do that, you might get to the point where you'd like to make these teachings available to other people. And that's where 
your generosity to produce merit might kick in where you realize like, oh my goodness, these teachings are helping me so much. Let me ensure that these teachings are available for other people. And nowadays, I think people refer to this as paying it forward. If you've ever heard of that term where people pay it forward, where they're receiving some benefit from things that people did in the past. And now that they're receiving that benefit, they would like to pay it forward so that other people in the future can have access to those types of things. So the Buddha was teaching this 2,500 years ago. It's helpful to understand that merit can't be transferred to another person. I think somebody was asking me about that in this class at the beginning of class. And here's where I'm going to be talking about that. If you go to some places, even Buddhist temples, when you make an offering of any kind of offering, they might have you pick up this little water bottle and a little urn. And then after you make that offering, they will ask you to pour this water out into a little bowl. And as they're doing that, they might be chanting. The monks might be chanting. And what they teach you is that you're transferring your merit that whatever merit that you've created, you're now transferring that to your dead relatives or to anybody in life that you would like to transfer it to. This isn't what the Buddha actually taught, but this is what people believe. If you understand what I taught you with the natural law of gamma, that only you can create your own gamma, right? Like this is a wholesome gamma. Merit is wholesome gamma. Only you can create wholesome karma for yourself. You can't transfer your wholesome karma to somebody else. And also, if you understand the benefit of practicing generosity, which leads to merit, which the benefit is that it's improving the condition of your mind, you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment, you can't transfer that benefit to somebody else. So people perform a rite, a ritual, or a ceremony, or worship. And if you go on the field trip tomorrow, you might see this, where they have these little urns of water. In Thai, we call it guatnam, where you pour out this little water, and people say that, okay, you're transferring your merit to somebody else. But you can't do this. It's not possible for you to accomplish that. So your parents can't do a whole bunch of really unwholesome and unwise things in this life, and then you kind of clean it up for them by making some offerings and transferring some merit to them. This is what people think. There's some people that you will hear today in life that they might be drinking or using drugs and they're older in life and they're like, oh, I'm not gonna eliminate that from my life. When I die, my kids will transfer me some merit and I'll be just fine, right? This isn't true. This isn't the way that your mind would get to enlightenment or get to improve results. It's you that is producing your gamma. You can't produce gamma for other people the way that the Buddha taught in that phrase that I showed you in our previous discussion. Okay, so I like to make sure you guys know about that. Then here's a word from the Buddha, his teachings on how to make an offering. If you decide you would ever like to make an offering to somebody, he talks about purifying the offering. And he talks about purifying it for the donor and purifying it for the recipient. And he says the way to purify your offering is to be sure that before you give an offering, that your mind is joyful. While you're giving an offering, be sure your mind is calm and confident. And then after you give an offering, be sure your mind is still joyful. And the reason why he's teaching this is because you should put some thought into any particular type of offering that you might make to somebody. Don't just haphazardly do something because you might make an unwise decision. Getting to this higher consciousness is to think through your decisions, whether it's your intentions, your speech, your actions, your livelihood, anything that you're doing in order to get to this enlightened mental state and cultivate wisdom and only produce wholesome results in your life, you're going to need to think through each decision you make. And it doesn't need to be a 20 day thought or a one month thought. It can be 
a couple of moments. It can be a couple of hours, whatever it is, but think through your thoughts and what it is that you're going to do and make a certain decision that is wise. Whereas if you haphazardly made a decision about an offering and you gave too much, you might get to the end of your offering and feel remorseful. That, oh my goodness, I gave too much. What am I going to do? I can't afford food for myself now. What am I going to do? I gave too much. Or you might get to the end of your offering and realize I didn't give enough. Oh my God, I feel so guilty. I have all this money in the bank and I only gave like $1 or one bot or 10 bot. Like, what am I doing? You know, why don't I give more? You might feel remorseful. So the Buddha is teaching you to put some thought into your decisions about any particular offering so that you can have joy before giving and you can have joy after giving. And then while you're giving, your mind can be calm and confident. And then he talks about who you should give an offering to. And once again, here he's being even more detailed than he was before. But now instead of talking about the four stages of enlightenment, he's talking about the condition of the mind, which the four stages of enlightenment are the condition of the mind. But here he's talking about it specifically through the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. He says, anybody that you make an offering to, the recipient should be free of craving or practicing for the removal of craving. They should be free of anger or are practicing for the removal of anger. They should be free of ignorance or this unknowing of true reality or practicing for the removal of ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. So what you should see in a person that you make an offering to is you should see generosity, you should see loving kindness, and you should see wisdom. That's what you're looking for, right? So if you see someone who has a lot of craving, they're going to be wanting things done their way right? And and then therefore they're going to experience anger and frustration and agitation and annoyance and all these kinds of things. And this is coming from their ignorance or their unknowing of true reality. So where you see just the opposite, where someone's quite peaceful, quite joyful, you can see that they're generous, that they're loving and kind and they have wisdom. This would be an individual that you might decide to make offerings to. And you're supporting that individual and sharing the teachings and it's helping you to come in contact with somebody that can then help you on the path to enlightenment. And you can do this with without remorse, where you can maintain your joy through having this joy before giving, after giving, and remaining calm and confident while giving. This is what's called the way of practice. This is something that the Buddha teaches in his teachings because he's got these teachings of the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the three poisons, extensive meditation training. You can go on and on and on. The 10 fetters, the seven factors of enlightenment, all these different things. But then there's a place in his teaching where he boils it down to something very simple that you can practice on a day-to-day basis. It's called the way of practice. This is what he shares that an individual who's looking to get to enlightenment should be doing on a day-to-day basis. He says, practice generosity. You should be looking in your day for how to practice generosity. And as I've mentioned, it can be as simple as holding a door for somebody, right? And you just let somebody else go in the door without an expectation of anything in return, without even an expectation of a thank you. You can also donate blood, right? That's generosity. You can share food. You can do all kinds of sharing in order to practice generosity. When you're practicing generosity for the continuation of the teachings of the Buddha, that's merit. But the Buddha is saying that you should be looking for all different types of ways to practice generosity in your daily life. But remember, you need to practice this from the middle way. If you were craving, if you were longing, if you were yearning to practice generosity, well, you might be exhausting your resources 
Or you might be in a situation where you can't practice generosity in terms of financial resources, and now you're depleting your resources and you're just giving, 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 giving. But also if you are over here where you never shared with people, your mind will be quite selfish. So you need to find that middle way with your generosity. Even with generosity, you need to practice the middle way, right? So practicing generosity on a day-to-day consistent basis is one of the first things the Buddha says, you should do this on a day-to-day basis. The next thing he talks about is moral conduct, is practicing the moral conduct, that right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Because as long as you're putting harm out into the world, that's just going to come back to you. So after a student would establish right view with the Buddha, he would teach them the Four Noble Truths. He would then teach them the moral conduct because you need to shut down the harmful decisions that you're making in the world through your moral conduct. So by shutting that down, you're significantly reducing your unwholesome karma. And if you can get to a point where you've purified your moral conduct, you won't be causing any harm through your moral conduct at all. So practicing generosity is helping you eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Practicing the moral conduct is helping you to shut down any unwholesome karma that you're generating through unwise decisions around your moral conduct. And then the third one is practicing meditation. This is the third thing that he says we should be doing on each day, on a day-to-day basis, in order to move the mind to enlightenment. So this is a real simple teaching that helps you to be able to see what to do on a day-to-day basis. Yes, there's the Eightfold Path that is supporting this, because the Eightfold Path shares with you the moral conduct and shares with you the meditation. Meditation, but this is a way to really think about it in simple terms. What should I be doing each day on a day-to-day basis? Practicing generosity, moral conduct, and meditation each day. Look for ways to accomplish that. Okay, any questions on anything I've shared so far? Yes, ma'am. Up into the microphone. Um, so do people who feel depleted, say, like after their their job or whatever they're doing in life is that perhaps because they have cravings attachments and desires and expectations so that they're not feeling fulfilled afterwards yes having craving desire attachment it's like carrying a burden on your shoulders and now you go through the world craving 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 wanting things your way and if you get things your way that was a good day. Wow, I had such a good day. But now you go out into the world with those same cravings and the next day you can't get what you want. Oh my God, it was such a bad day. It was horrible. Such a hectic day. It was so tiring. I'm so exhausted. That's because you're craving, the person's craving so many things and they're not getting things their way and it's really exhausting to have those painful feelings. So this is why by the time you eliminate craving, desire, attachment, an enlightened being doesn't get exhausted. They don't get tired. They get sleepy. They need to go to sleep in order to rest the mind and rest the body, but they're not tired or exhausted because they're not carrying around that burden of craving, desire, attachment. And this is why an individual who's enlightened can sustain their energy well you know, into the future all day long. And this is why when we were talking about caffeine and those substances that cause heedlessness, you're not interested in those conditional experiences where the mind goes up and down and up and down because you can't cultivate that sustainable energy that you can maintain throughout your day when you don't have craving, desire, attachment. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... We'll go on and I've got some more to share with you guys here. This is a teaching from the Buddha about generosity and practicing generosity. This was really impactful for me when I first saw it. So I tend to share it in classes when we're talking about merit and generosity. Here it's titled, If Beings Knew the Results of Giving and Sharing. Monks, if beings knew, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, 
They would not eat without having given, nor would the stain of selfishness obsess them and take root in their minds, even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful. They would not eat without having shared it, if there were someone to share it with. But because beings do not know, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they eat without having given, and the stain of selfishness obsesses them and takes root in their minds. What he's talking about here about the results of giving and sharing is enlightenment, the peace and the joy. He's saying if beings understood how peaceful and how joyful enlightenment is, and that it's generosity that leads to that improved mental state, they would not eat without having shared it, if there was someone to share it with, even if it was their last bite, even if it was their last mouthful. If they knew that this peace and joy comes through generosity, and that's what helps you to get to enlightenment, then there's never a time where you wouldn't be interested to share, even if it was your last bite. So that's what he's describing here, that he knows the results of this giving and sharing. And if others knew that, then they would also choose to share and be generous. Here's another teaching that he's sharing the five benefits of giving. Monks, there are these five benefits of giving. What five? One is dear and agreeable to many people. Wholesome persons go in large numbers to you. One acquires a wholesome reputation. One is not deficient in householder duties. With the breakup of the body after death, One is reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world. These are the five benefits of giving. By giving, one becomes dear. One follows the duty of the wholesome. The wholesome, mentally disciplined monks always go in large numbers to one or to you. They teach one the teachings that dispels all discontentedness, having understood which The taintless one here attains enlightenment. So the taintless one, a taint is a pollution. So the taintless one means you don't have pollutions in mind, you attain enlightenment. So if you're supporting the teachings to come into the world, then this allows you to eliminate the pollutions because you have the teachings to be able to then get to this enlightened mental state. What I like to share here is the first four of these five benefits are pretty straightforward, but I would like to share about number five, where he's talking about with the breakup of the body, that an individual can be reborn in this heavenly existence. And this is someone who's being generous. The Buddha is not teaching that just because you're generous, you get to be reborn in the heavenly world. And that's the reason why you should be generous. He's just sharing with you the natural laws of existence of what truly is happening. Because remember, the goal is not to be reborn in heaven. That's not the ultimate goal. So he's not dangling a carrot and saying, hey, give me money, give me money. And if you give me money, you'll get to be reborn in heaven. That's not what he's sharing. It's the same things that lead to your enlightenment are the same things that lead to rebirth in the heavenly world if you fall short of enlightenment for any reason. So he's just listing out these five benefits. And notice he puts this one last because that's not the ultimate goal to be reborn in heaven. The ultimate goal is to get to enlightenment and escape the whole cycle of rebirth. But he's sharing the natural laws of existence that, yeah, if you fall short of enlightenment for any reason and you've been a generous person, then there's this potential that you could be reborn in the heavenly world. But even from there, you still need to get to enlightenment. 
it. You haven't escaped the cycle of rebirth yet. So here, whenever you see the Buddha talking about rebirth into the heavenly world, he's not trying to suggest to you that you should be reborn into the heavenly world. That's not the ideal existence. The human existence is the ideal existence because you have built-in motivation to get to enlightenment. In the human world, we have pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. In the unenlightened state, you're going to experience all three feelings. And those painful feelings tend to be built-in motivation for you to get to enlightenment because you don't like that sadness or the anger or the frustration or the guilt or the shame or the fear or the stress or anxiety. So that's like built-in motivation to get to enlightenment. But in the heavenly world, they only experience pleasant feelings. So they only experience happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria, things like that. So they tend to be very complacent in the heavenly realm. So getting into the heavenly realm, while it sounds interesting, like, wow, it'd be great to hang out in heaven. That's not a permanent existence. It's an impermanent existence. And those beings oftentimes are complacent, which means they don't practice to get to enlightenment. So they oftentimes are reborn down into other realms, even in hell, the animal realm or afflicted spirit realm. They can be reborn back into the heavenly realm, and they can also be reborn into the human realm as well. What's that? The heaven? Heaven? Uh, It it depends, right? Everybody that gets there, they're going to function differently. But the heavenly realm, it's not ideal because oftentimes people are thinking that, oh, that would be so great to be reborn in heaven. You'll find some people here in Thailand that's like, oh, if I can just get reborn in heaven, that's all I'm interested in is just get to heaven, right? But that's not ideal. You're not interested in relegating yourself to an existence where you will most likely be very complacent. Now in the human realm, you've got this built-in motivation to get to enlightenment. So whenever you see the Buddha talking about rebirth in the heavenly realm, he's just explaining to you what is truly happening based on these natural laws, but he's not trying to encourage you or motivate you to get to the heavenly world. He's just explaining what's truly happening if you happen to fall short of enlightenment, that if you're practicing these good, wholesome teachings, there's a potential for you to be reborn into the heavenly world. Here's another teaching from the Buddha. It's titled, Gifts of Teachings is Superior Than Gifts of Material Things. He says, Monks, there are these two kinds of gifts, a gift of material things and a gift of the teachings. Of these two kinds of gifts, this is supreme, a gift of the teachings. There are these two kinds of sharing, sharing of material things and sharing of the teachings. Of these two kinds of sharing, this is supreme, sharing of the teachings. There are these two kinds of assistance, assistance with material things and assistance with the teachings. Of these two kinds of assistance, this is supreme, assistance with the teachings. So he's basically saying the very best thing that you could ever do is share the teachings with others. But he doesn't obligate you to go out into the world and choose to teach people, right? There's going to be plenty of people who get to enlightenment over the course of my life, but not everybody's going to decide to share the teachings. It's just in terms of being a teacher right? You're not responsible to go out and hit a drum and hold a picket sign on the street and try to convince people to learn and practice these teachings. That's not how the world becomes peaceful. The world becomes peaceful by you eliminating your craving, anger, and ignorance. That's how 
you become peaceful. And then as each individual chooses to do that on their own, then slowly but surely the entire world will become peaceful. But the world can't learn the teachings if they're not available. So the Buddha is saying, okay, if you share the teachings, this is much better than sharing material things. So if you could press a button, like we were talking about the other day, and you press this button and your mom and your dad and your brothers and sisters and your friends and family, they would stay angry and bitter and harsh or discontent and feeling guilty and shameful and stressed and anxiety for the rest of their life. Or you could press this button and your parents and your siblings and your friends and coworkers, they could get to peace and joy for the rest of their life. Which button would you press? Button one or button two? Button two? Yeah, we'd probably press button two, right? Well, we can't press a button for everybody to get to peacefulness and joy. It's not possible, right? But what we can do is we can ensure that the teachings are supported long into the future so that many generations to come can learn these teachings. That's how those individuals become more peaceful and more joyful. We pay it forward. And that's what the Buddha is saying. So the Buddha is saying, you could give your parents and your siblings and your friends all these material gifts. You give them a new car, a new house, more money, all these things. And that pales in comparison to sharing the teachings with them and helping them to be able to have access to the teachings. So practicing marriage, is a way for you to be able to share the teachings with others without having to go outside and actually hang up a shingle and do the teaching yourself necessarily, unless that's something that you are interested in doing, right? So here, this is what the Buddha is sharing in terms of a gift of the teachings, that this is more superior than any kind of material thing. And then lastly, this is the last thing that I'll share on this topic. This is where the Buddha is talking about mutual support between monks, Brahmins, and householders. I'll read this to you, and then I'll teach it to you what he's actually explaining. But first, let me help you understand what a Brahmin is. What a Brahmin is, is during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were people who were born into a certain family because there was a very strong caste system in place in the area that he was teaching. And if you were born into this family, you're now a Brahmin, which is essentially a holy person who is sharing Hindu teachings. And you are now deemed as an individual who can perform ceremonies and rites and rituals and worship. And the way that the people were taught is that you as a commoner weren't able to improve your life. If you would like to improve your life, you have to go to a Brahmin. You need to pay them money. Then they're going to do some kind of rite, ritual, ceremony, or worship on your behalf. And then when you pay them money, you go home and your life was supposed to get better because they performed some ceremony for you, that there was nothing you could do to improve your life. And the Buddha saw this, that this was going on, and he knew that this isn't the way the world works. This isn't the natural laws of existence. And this actually bred a lot of corruption because today, you would show up to the Brahmin and they would say, oh, it's $5 for me to do that ceremony. And then you would go home and you would come back next week and they would say, oh, today it's $10. Why? Mm, Because I said so. And you can't do anything about it because you're taught that you can't do anything to improve your life. So these ceremonies that were going on by the Brahmin, it wasn't actually helping the people. And the Buddha knew that. But these Brahmin were teaching a little bit about moral conduct And sometimes they would come to learn with the Buddha. They would be students of the Buddha. So the Buddha is teaching his students, the monks, about these Brahmin and household practitioners, people who are learning his teachings from the household. He says, monks, Brahmins and householders are very helpful to you. They provide you the requisites of robes, alms food, lodgings, and medicines in time of sickness. And you monks are very helpful to Brahmins and householders. As you teach them the teachings that are good in the beginning, the middle, and the end, 
with the correct meaning and wording, and you proclaim the spiritual life in its fulfillment in complete purity. Thus, monks, this spiritual life is lived with mutual support for the purpose of crossing the flood and making a complete end of discontentedness. So here, what he's talking about is this mutual support between the people who are sharing the teachings, like ordained practitioners and teachers, and then householders. There's this mutual support. What's happening is the ordained practitioners and teachers like me, we let go of all of our worldly pursuits in terms of a career or any kind of aspirations along those lines. We let all that stuff go. And then we just get into sharing the teachings of the Buddha and helping people to learn and develop their practice in order to get to enlightenment. We just practice generosity of sharing the teachings because that's the most superior gift that I could ever give you. The best thing I could ever give you is sharing these teachings with you. And I do that out of loving kindness and compassion. But then what the Buddha teaches here is that household practitioners and during his lifetime, the Brahmin, the people who are learning the teachings, they then support the ordained practitioners or the teachers in order to allow them to continue to share their teachings. And now there's this mutual support that the ordained practitioners and teachers are having the basic necessities that they need in order to sustain their life and to then be able to provide meditation cushions and electric and water and all the different things. But then also the students are receiving the teachings and it's helping to improve your life. So in this way, there's this mutual support. So the Buddha built this into the system to ensure that his teachings continued. Because if I was outside or if an ordained practitioner was outside and we had a career and we were working and we were making money in a career and we got to enlightenment, there isn't necessarily a a full motivation for that individual to necessarily share the teachings. Of course, there's loving kindness and compassion, but they wouldn't be required to share the teachings in any particular way. But if you base your life off of sharing teachings with others, you're going to need to share the teachings with others or else you don't eat, right? That's the way the Buddha set it up is there's this mutual support between his students and the household practitioners, because once he died, he wasn't sure whether people were going to share the teachings or not. So by his students letting go of all worldly pursuits and deciding to share the teachings, he was ensuring that they would continue to share the teachings because they don't eat if they didn't share the teachings with others. But also a household practitioner can't improve their life if they're not learning the teachings. So this was a way to ensure that the teachings of the Buddha continued in the world is ensuring that there's this mutual support between students and teachers. And then, like I mentioned, as you should see, that you should see that a teacher is not just putting the money in their pocket, but they're sharing it back with the students, that it should bring this great fruit back to the students. You should see more and more opportunities to learn, more and more opportunities to grow your practice and develop your practice, that by that person who's a teacher not having a career they can be fully available to you. Whereas if I was working on the side, I wouldn't have time to make all these slideshows and come into class and have personal guidance with you guys and do all the retreats and courses and all the things that I do. I wouldn't be able to do that. So the Buddha set this up very wisely so that the people who are teaching can be fully involved in that. And then the students are getting the teachings that are very deep that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. The Buddha teaches us that when we share teachings with you guys, that we shouldn't like start off really great, and then as we talk, it kind of fades, or that we should start off kind of slow and then build and build and build. He says, when you're teaching, that it should be good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So the students are interested to learn and develop. That if your teachings were kind of fading as you talked for 
multiple hours that then the students would kind of be uninterested. So we teach where the teachings are good in the beginning, the middle, and the end so that you guys are interested in learning what it is that we're sharing with you to be able to help you on this journey to enlightenment. So in this way, there's this mutual support that the teachers are sharing the teachings, the students are receiving those teachings, improving their life, improving their relationships, and then potentially if they're able to, to share with the teachers. But this shouldn't ever be anything that a teacher expects from you. So whenever you're in an environment where the teachings of the Buddha are being shared, you shouldn't have any expectation that you are required to support any particular place. There are people who support a particular teacher. And then if a teacher is practicing, that means that their support of you shouldn't be contingent on an offering. You should see that a teacher is willing to support you, whether you support them or not, that the teacher should just be practicing generosity. And of course, there will be certain people that are supporting that teacher, but then that teacher should be able to help anybody and anybody. If a teacher is set up in such a way that their courses were for a fee and a person had to pay in order to come to the course, then that means the people who are disadvantaged that are really struggling in life and having difficulties with financial resources, they wouldn't be able to get access to the teachings. It would only be the middle and the upper class people they would be able to get access to the teachings. So that means down here where the people were having difficulties with finances and struggling in life, they would be stuck because now there's a price for this course and they wouldn't be able to then access the teachings they need to get out of that. So by a teacher functioning in such a way that they are only helping and helping and helping and they don't have any expectation of anything in return, then that means their classes and their courses and their retreats are open to everybody and anybody. And there's no obstacle of financial support in the way. So for example, in my life, I support anybody and everybody that is interested in learning the teachings. I have students that are in like small villages in Africa that make like $50 a month and that's what they live on. And I can still help that person. I'll never see any kind of money from them and nor do I need to, right? I don't have that expectation. I'm just there to help them and support them and help them receive the teachings that they need. But then of course there are some people who do share financial support with me. And because of that, it allows me to then help this person who doesn't have any resources. So by me removing any prices on anything that I do and that my support is not contingent on financial support, I can help anybody and everybody in the world. So that's the way you should see a teacher set up is that they're willing to help anybody and everybody, that their support of you isn't contingent on getting something from you. Because if somebody expected something or wanted something from you, that's their craving, desire, attachment. And you saw the Buddha taught to make offerings to people who are free of craving, desire, attachment. So if somebody's wanting and expecting from you, then you might consider whether it would be wise to make an offering to that person. So these are the teachings that I share on what is merit. And I'll just open up to any questions that you guys might have related to this topic, if any at all. Do you guys have any questions? Yep. Looks like. Oh, you're going to the bathroom. <laughs> I thought you were going for the microphone. <laughs> All right. Okay, sure. A lot in Thailand, and you, you meet people who say they get a thousand baht tip, and the first thing they say is they'll give it to merit and rather than give it something else. But I've also been to places like Banrak Thai, which is uh, a lot of monks visit. They stay in very nice hotel rooms overlooking the lake. 
and we were we were watching them um, go in their land cruiser being taken around and we were in a spa and the monks came into the spa and um they were looking at the products and we were looking at the products we were kind of craving the products but they're very expensive but the monks walked out with bags of very expensive products mm -hmm. so how does that balance out with the the, the role of the monk. Sure. So the Buddha taught that while somebody may try to follow what he does, if they're not practicing what he taught, even if they're wearing an orange robe and shaving their head, they're not an actual monk. And he gave an analogy of this. He said, if he's a cow and he's walking on soft land and he's leaving hoof prints in the earth and there's a donkey behind him and this donkey is putting his hoof prints into the same prints as the cow and the donkey's thinking, I am a cow, I am a cow, I am a cow. Does that make the donkey a cow? And the answer is no, it doesn't make the donkey a cow. So just because you see someone wearing an orange robe and shaving their head doesn't mean they're practicing the teachings of the Buddha. Oftentimes what you can see in some places is that people might be wearing an orange robe, shaving their hair or wearing white clothes and shaving their head. And they're not practicing the actual teachings because the words of the Buddha have really been locked away for a long time, not intentionally, but because they're in 45 large volumes of books this big and it costs three months of salary to print them out. That would be very expensive for the average Thai person. Even the average temple doesn't have access to these. What you'll find if you travel around the world is very few Buddhist temples are actually sharing the teachings of the Buddha any longer. We're at a low point in society. And the Buddha talked about this during his lifetime, that we would be at exactly at this point in this time in history, that we would be at this very low point where people wouldn't understand what he actually taught. So you'll see these kinds of things. You'll see stories on news sometime if you watch Thai news where they've caught some monks using drugs or alcohol or they're having sex or even there was one where there were some children involved in this kind of thing. And right away, we know that's not a monk. They're wearing an orange robe, they've shaved their head, but they're not a monk. So your practice to enlightenment is based on what you do, but you'll see other people in the Buddhist community that are doing things opposite of what the Buddha taught. And you can just understand like, okay, that's exactly why the Buddha is teaching you what he's teaching you back here about who to make offerings to, so that you can see should I make offerings to these people or not? Because if you can imagine during the lifetime of a Buddha, he must have had tens of thousands of people studying with him, right? By the time he got to the, his death, the word probably spread pretty far and wide of what he was doing because more and more people were getting to enlightenment to start telling everybody else, like, oh my goodness, my mind's so peaceful and joyful. Like this guy is the one who helped me do it. So there was probably tens of thousands of people that were ordained during his lifetime and not all of them were learning and practicing closely. So he was giving guidance of saying, okay, out of these tens and thousands of monks that are ordained with me, these are the types of ones that you would like to support. So that's what you should look for. So if you're seeing people doing those kinds of things, then you know not to support them. But the challenge is, is that here in Thailand, it's part of a challenge, but it's also a certain benefit, is the Thai people are very dedicated. They're very dedicated to supporting the teachings of the Buddha, the household practitioners. They will provide support to a temple or to a teacher wholeheartedly. And they don't necessarily understand this teaching to support a ordained practitioner who doesn't have craving, anger, and ignorance. Because some of these temples you go into, not only do you see that, but you'll see gambling, 
you know, all those examples I gave you of monks smoking cigarettes, hitting dogs and animals. These are all things I've seen, right? Like gambling at a temple and stuff. You'll see these kinds of things and Thai people will still support. They'll still support because they haven't necessarily learned this particular teaching. So if you practice what the Buddhist teaching more and more as we're starting to bring the Buddhist teachings into our community, then we will support it in the way that the Buddha taught and we'll develop a very wholesome community because now more and more these teachings are reaching the international community and the way that the teachings of the Buddha reach a new community is they're not pushed into a community, they're pulled into a community. So as you guys see, there's lots of people who come in and out of here and that are learning with me and that are learning online all over the world, you know, in Asia and Europe and the Americas and all these different places in Australia, New Zealand, People in the English-speaking world are pulling these teachings into their communities, and if we do it in this way, that's what will sustain them for long into the future. Even though there are certain examples in Thailand that we can point to and say, wow, this is really wonderful that Thai people are doing this, there's also certain things that we can say, yeah, this is really unwise what the Thai people are doing here, and that's one of the examples. So you'll see these from time to time. In my opinion, the Thai people are practicing the teachings the closest to what the Buddha taught but they're not perfect. They're still doing some of those kinds of things because those particular people still have craving anger and ignorance in their mind. And that's why they're choosing to make those unwise decisions. But you won't see me carrying those big bags with lots of soaps and Prada sunglasses and all these kind of stuff. By the way, if you guys see my sunglasses, it has a little Oakley thing on it. Those aren't Oakley sunglasses. They were only 200 baht or 250 baht down in uh, Phuket, right? So you'll see $5 shirts, right? I only buy expensive things that are actually helping me to share the teachings like this computer and this phone and that camera. Everything else you see in my life, very basic, very simple. I live a very simple life. So you won't ever see me carrying those kinds of things around. What's that? Oh, okay. Yeah. They have polarized lenses in them and they seem to work really well. They work. Um, in the respect of merit, does, can this also transfer to the communities that we live in, in the respect of um, we've got a big homeless um, problem in Liverpool and I often go and give them food. Um, is, would you, well, I'm not saying would you get merit, I don't do it because of that, but then would they not fall into the category there of craving or anger or ignorance? So what you're describing is a practice of generosity, yeah. which you need in order to get to enlightenment. You're going to need to practice generosity, but it's not merit. So merit is a specific type of generosity, but what you're doing is wonderful. That's great. But if you're going to produce merit, which means it makes the teachings available for others, that would be to support the teachings of the Buddha. That is an individual who's sharing the teachings. So in your situation, that's wonderful that you're doing that, but that's generosity, which is fine. And then there's this merit, which is generosity, but it's a unique type of generosity. It's a unique type of wholesome gamma. And you're generating wholesome gamma by practicing generosity, but it's not the same quality as merit. Merit is a much higher quality of wholesome gamma because it makes the teachings available for many other people in the world. Sometimes when people are sitting by that uh, electric switch yeah. or oh, that, it's gone again, that plug, yeah. there it is. Um, it I've got a Thai temple that's in my hometown, so I do go there and mm. do cooking and, and, and things like that. So I'm assuming that the merit probably comes from there. But also what I have seen is 
what the um, what you're saying there in respect of um, the monks that are there do tend to get quite a lot of money individually given by a lot of the Thai community, and they've got bank accounts, etc., which I thought they weren't allowed to have. But you see them around town buying phones, buying lots of material things, and there's an element there of I'm not quite. Sh I don't. It doesn't sit comfortably with me, if I'm being honest. Yep. I'm not saying there's anything dishonest going on, mm -hmm. but it just seems that the you know every time they come in, they're handing over sometimes fifty pound notes mm -hmm. um, to the monks. Um, yeah. so, to them individually, not as a temple. Yeah, so that is producing merit for you when you're cooking at the temple, right? That's producing merit. Again, what those ordained practitioners are doing may or may not be in line with the teachings of the Buddha. I'm not here to judge that, but I'll share this with you, that during the lifetime of the Buddha, he didn't accept any gold or any silver because that was the currency at the time. He also didn't accept land. He didn't accept animals. He didn't accept slaves or women or children. He only accepted food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care because he was able to live with his students. His students would invite him to come live there and he would live with them for a week or two or a month or two. And then he would help the household to learn his teachings by living in the household. And then the villagers would come together in the evening times and he would teach in the evening and help the villagers after they had done their work in the day. And he would just live right there and they would feed him, they would clothe him. He didn't need any kind of money because he would just walk wherever you'd like to go. Nowadays, ordained practitioners and people like me, we do accept money, but we only do it, or at least in my, the way that I practice it, is I only do that because I don't have one of you there with me every single time I need to get food or every time I need to fill up my gas tank of my motorbike or I need to change the oil on my motorbike or I need to buy a set of clothes. Whereas if there was a student always there with me, I wouldn't need money at all because somebody would take care of what I need to take care of. So what you should see is you should see a very basic, very simple life from a teacher. And then any kind of extra money should be used in order to come right back to the community. That's the gamma that is coming back. But unfortunately, because not everybody and not many people are understanding how to practice. You do see ordained practitioners that have bank accounts and that put money in their bank accounts and things like this. Some ordained practitioners that are practicing really closely, they might actually have a bank account that their people put money into. But then what they do is they have a second person. I forget the name for this. There's some name for it where that person monitors their bank account and takes care of their bank account. They themselves don't have access to their bank account. And then and that person gives them money kind of like from that bank account, like once a month or something to be able to live their life through. So an individual who's on the path to enlightenment and is eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance, or has actually removed it, you should see that they're not splurging on these different things. That by the time you eliminate craving, your life is very simple, very basic, because it's very expensive to have craving. You guys know, right? Like sometimes you can get into debt. You have so much craving because you want the latest iPhone, you want the latest this, or you want all these shoes and all these clothes and all this jewelry. It's very expensive. So this is one of the ways that I'm able to live so simply and without an extensive amount of money because I've you know eliminated all this craving that now I can just live a very basic life. So I spend money on food, water, clothing, shelter and medical care. Anything extra 
it comes back into the center and to help you guys. And there have been some rare occasions where like during COVID that America was giving me money as an American citizen and I was giving it to orphanages. I went out and I bought big bags of rice and uh, different supplies and I would give it to orphanages because I didn't need that money from the American government. So I just used it that way. So that's one of the things that a ordained practitioner and a teacher can do is that if they have excess money at the end of the month, they can give it to somebody else like an orphanage or something like this. And that's how I practice, but that's not the way everybody practices. So what the Buddha is teaching you is to give to people who are practicing what he taught. So you may decide just like I shared here is to not give to those particular people. It sounds like they're very well supported. You might decide to find another place that your support can be used maybe more wisely. You have to lean forward. I think that electric plug. Is it going to get, yeah. How was explained to me, and this is probably totally wrong, but they said there's like three types of ordained monk. The forest monks, then you've got the ones that follow obviously what the Buddha say, and then they said you've got the city monks who effectively live quite a modern life. That's how it was explained to me. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know. There, here in Thailand, you have two different branches of Buddhist teachings. There's the forest tradition, and then what I would refer to as the city tradition. And most people think of the forest tradition as being closest to the life uh, of the Buddha in terms of his teachings, where the people who are ordained in the city, maybe not so much, but that's what other people say. Um, and of course, you can have a city monk who's practicing very closely, or you can have a forest monk who's not practicing very closely. So it's each individual. And that's why it's really helpful to get to know the person before you just make them an offer blindly. And that's essentially what the Buddha is teaching you here is to get to know the person before you just blindly make an offering. And that will be ensuring that your offering is the most impactful and the most beneficial. Yes, ma'am. So as a lay practitioner, how do you have merit inside of right livelihood? So you're teaching, let's say, meditation as Mm -hmm. an example. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious about how those two, that act of generosity, but at the same time you are earning a living from providing knowledge or wisdom in the world, in the mm-hmm. work that you do. You're talking about me specifically, No, right? I'm just talking as a lay person oh, how, I, yeah, how I would hold that. Yeah. So right livelihood is ensuring that you're not causing harm through your livelihood and the way you choose to sustain your life. And I taught that on Tuesday with right livelihood. So if you are sharing the teachings of meditation or the teachings of the Buddha, That is your generosity that is producing merit, right? And then if you're choosing to work too, is that what you're saying? Okay. And if you're choosing to work too, now when you're making money, you're just ensuring that you're not causing harm through one of those five wrong livelihoods or through scheming, belittling, hinting, flattery, pursuing gain with gain, and you purify your livelihood there. So in that situation, you're practicing right livelihood. That's where you're acquiring the income. But then over here, it sounds like you do it at no cost, where you're sharing the teachings of meditation and maybe the teachings of the Buddha. And that's your generosity and your merit that's being produced. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Anything else on this topic? Yep. Rasmus? Hello. Yeah. I saw just one uh, other slide, the last one I think was. Just very curious about the word spiritual life. 
Yes. That Buddha says himself. Mm -hmm. Do you know anything about that? So this is like the pure life. That's what that means. Mm -hmm. So by the time you practice this life or this spiritual life or this holy life or this pure life, these are the different words that he uses in that same context. Whereas if he just used the same word all the time, it wouldn't maybe be as penetrating. So you can think of that as the pure life. That's what he's guiding you to create by purifying your mind. You can practice this pure life. And then here he's talking about sharing the teachings of the pure life. Nothing else? Okay, let me check online. Looks like we have a bunch of students here. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's go into the next topic, which is our afternoon. I would like to share with you guys continued support because we're coming to the end of our course here. Tomorrow will be the last day and we'll talk about the field trip as well. But let's talk about continued support on the, the path to enlightenment. Uh, some of you guys have already been asking me these questions throughout the week. So I'm going to answer those here. But if for some reason I haven't answered your question after we talk here, feel free to let me know. Okay. So these are all the different options that you have in order to continue your learning because you're going to need continued support on your journey to enlightenment. There's books audiobooks, videos, podcasts, and quizzes. This is all available through our website. I even have these little quizzes at the end of each chapter of volume one. You can uh, press the link at the end of the chapter in the electronic version. It'll take you to a little 20 question quiz. And some of the questions are kind of funny. I try to make it comical. And uh, it can confirm your learning for you that yes, you've learned what you needed to learn. You'll see the score. I don't go in there and check the scores. It will send you an email and let you know what the score is. So it's totally for your benefit. I don't look at it. Other people don't look at it, but it will help you. So you've got the books, the audio books, the videos, the podcasts, and the quizzes all to be able to help you accessible from our website. Then there's in-person and online classes, courses, and retreats. The in-person ones are here. And I also travel around the world. Sometimes different people invite me to different places to teach. And wherever you see me teaching, you can always come. And it's always going to be at no cost. If somebody invites me to come teach and they invite me to come there, I ensure that they're not charging. I wouldn't go there and teach if they're charging a price, that it's only by donation only. So anywhere you see me teaching in the world, you're always welcome to come learn in person, but then also online. So typically when I'm teaching here at the temple, I'm either live streaming and or Zoom. Zoom is usually open. So you can always come into Zoom. It's the same login and the same password every single time. You can just come into Zoom like there's people here now that are learning along with us. So you guys can come in at any point that I'm teaching any of these classes, courses, or retreats. And all the access for that is through the website. So there's online programs, both in person and online, that are consistent and ongoing. This is the group learning program and the Pali Canon in English study group. The group learning program is Sunday and Wednesday. It's 9 a.m. here at the temple on Sunday and Wednesday, and it's 9 p.m. from my home. In both places, I'm live streaming. So at home, I don't have a live audience, but in the morning here at the temple, there's a live audience that's present. At home, when I'm live streaming, people are all over the world learning. So from 9 a.m. or 9 p.m., wherever time zone you're in, there's probably going to be a live class that's available for you. And if you missed a live class for any reason, then you can always watch the recording because it's on YouTube, it's on Facebook, and it's on the podcast. And what I'm doing in that group learning program is that first book, volume one, 
each Sunday I go chapter by chapter, one chapter at a time. And it's a seven month program and it repeats every seven months. And then on Wednesdays, what we do is we come together and I do meditation, guided meditation with the students. And then I just open up to any and all questions that you guys have. So the group learning program is like a foundational program. It's kind of like getting a bachelor's or master's degree in Buddhist studies. And that's usually where students will start. Then there's the Words of the Buddha Pali Canon in English Study Group. That meets each Saturday. And that's volumes 2 through 13. And we meet at 9 a.m. here at the temple and 9 p.m. at home. And they're both live streamed. So you could join those live classes or you could watch the recordings on Saturday. Now, this is a year and a half program to go through volumes 2 through 13. And this is more like a study group. This is more like a PhD program because students who usually go into that program, they've already developed a foundation. So they already have this framework. And now the Polycanon English Study Group is kind of filling that in. So for you guys, having taken this course, you could easily go into either one of those programs. You might even do both. Some people choose to do both. So if you took the group learning program, it's a seven month program where you'll thoroughly go through each aspect of this book. And right now we're actually finishing up. We have another two months and we'll be done with that. And then we're going to restart it from the beginning. But people come in at any time. In the Polycan and English study group, we're in volume 11. And once again, people come in at any time because it's a year and a half program. By the time people come into the Polycanon and English study group, they already have a foundation so they can really start at any point. And what we do in there is students will typically read 10 chapters in the book. And it sounds like a lot, but a lot of these chapters are only one paragraph. So it's basically about an hour, hour and a half of reading. And you read that either before class or after class. And then when we get together for the class, a student will read the chapter and then I will share about five or 10 minutes of teachings on that chapter. And then I'll open up to any questions that you guys have. It's more like guidance in a study group versus me just teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching. So these are the two ongoing and consistent programs. And then I've got the classes, courses, and retreats all throughout the month and all throughout the year that are on the calendar and the schedule and the website that you can be able to see what's available and then attend either the foundation and the path to enlightenment course. You can take this again if you like. This is taught every month, the first week of the month. There's another course called Harmony and Relationships. That's a week-long course. There's a course called Experiencing the Four Jhanas in the Four Stages of Enlightenment. You can learn that one. And then the retreat is coming up in January, which is titled Developing a Life Practice to Attain the First Stage of Enlightenment. That's a retreat that gives you all the teachings that you would need in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment. You won't be in the first stage of enlightenment by the end of the retreat, but you'll have all the teachings that you need. And then there's another retreat in August, which is called Purification of the Mind where you're learning all the 10 fetters inside and out. We're actually spending an entire class period on each fetter. So we might spend like an hour, hour and a half just on one fetter, talking about what that fetter is, what the symptoms of it are, how to eliminate it, and then how to know that you've actually eliminated it when it's actually removed from the mind. So amongst all these different courses and classes and retreats, you have all the ability to learn either in person or online. And then you have the books, audiobooks, videos, and podcasts and quizzes to support you as well. So as you're learning all of that stuff, and there's a lot of resources out there and you find what works best for you and gradually work towards it, you then have personal guidance where either in person, you can meet with me here in Chiang Mai or as I travel around the world, 
or you can meet with me online. If you'd like to meet with me online, you can just get on our website and you can schedule an appointment. It'll show you the available times in your time zone, whatever time zone you're in. And then it'll send me a message and put it on my calendar based on my time zone. So I have appointments in the morning and evening, my time, but depending on where you are, it's going to be different times. And then we just meet in Zoom and we can talk one-on-one and there's no limit to what you can schedule. So students will sometimes schedule just to get started. Sometimes people are struggling with certain challenges in their relationships or a certain challenge at, at their work or at their job, maybe with their children, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their parents. Maybe they're trying to figure out where to live and they're not quite sure. They have different questions about meditation or the Eightfold Path or different things. You can meet through Zoom or you can meet in person. If you would like to meet in person, just send me a message or talk to me live like this and say, hey, David, can we meet next week? How was Monday? You know, at this time work for you. You can just talk to me or send me a private message and we can coordinate that. And then I'd like to make you guys aware of this online community, that there's an online Facebook community where there's about 16,000 people in our daily wisdom, walking the path with the Buddha Facebook community. And in there, I'm making posts each day with content from the books, but then also students are asking questions there. And as they ask questions, then I'm the only one who answers that. And as I answer it, other students are reading those answers and getting help. So it's kind of like an online classroom where it's only me that's answering the questions. So you have the ability to get help through asking questions in class, through posting in the Facebook group, through sending a private message, or through scheduling personal guidance. These are the four ways that you can get help, right? So asking questions in class, through posting in the Facebook group, through sending a private message, or through scheduling personal guidance. So you've got all these options available to you to receive continued help. So did I answer all your questions about continued support? Do you have other questions? No? Okay. Yeah, you're welcome. I know some of you guys were asking at different times. Oh, we hang out. We hang out all the time. So like uh, if I'm editing a podcast, you know, I'm like hanging out on the sofa, editing a podcast. My son might be playing a video game or doing his homework or something like that. The way we have our house organized is we have uh, the sofa living room area and then we have the kitchen, the dining table, and then we have a sofa around the dining room table. So my son can be eating while I'm hanging out on the sofa or he can be at the dining room table doing his homework while I'm hanging out on the sofa. So it's like one big room so that we're all hanging out at, at different times. So yeah, we hang out a good amount. Yeah, we play football in our village. I take him different places. But yeah, I'm doing all these this stuff. I've got my life really well organized. Um, yeah. <laughs> Balance, the middle way. Yeah, this is a good segue into what I have to share with you guys next. So actually, let's talk about our field trip before I talk about that. Okay, so... There's a field trip tomorrow if you guys would like to come. Uh, I invite you guys and anybody else, even if people haven't come to our classes, they're more than welcome. So if you guys meet people as you travel about, you're welcome to invite them. What we do is we meet here usually about 8.45 and I start at nine o'clock and we'll start with a meditation. I'll welcome everyone, start with a meditation. Then at 9.30, I'll just kind of like, give everyone the, you know, uh, the details of the event. Cause there'll be some people here that weren't here when I'm talking right now. 
What we'll do is I'll end up organizing transportation, those red trucks. I'll just count however many people here at 930 in the morning, and then I'll go get either one or two or three red trucks, and I'll get a flat rate. And then they'll take us to Wat Umong, which is a forest temple. They'll take us to Wat Doisotep, which is up on the mountain. And then we'll come back here to uh, the temple and we'll be here around 4.30 or 5, typically. So what I do is I walk you around for about an hour and a half at Wat Umong and teaching you the Buddhist teachings through the artwork, the symbolism, and the architecture. And helping you guys to see and understand how a temple is set up. Because essentially what a temple is, is it's like a living library. That when you walk through the temple, if you understand what this symbol is, then it speaks to you. It's almost like a scavenger hunt when you're going around a temple. You're kind of like, what were they trying to say? Because they built this 500 years ago or a thousand years ago. What was the artist trying to depict? Oh, that's the Four Noble Truths. That's what he's talking about right there. Or, oh, that's the Eightfold Path. Or, oh, that's the Five Precepts. So you can see through the artwork and the architecture and the symbolism, the teachings of the Buddha are represented. So now that you've studied for four days, you can go into a temple environment and participate in this activity. This is what Thai people do on their holiday when they go on vacation. You know, some people, we go to Disneyland, we go to Legoland, we go to different places like this. What Thai people do is they go visit temples because they're free. You can go into the temple and you can start looking at the artwork and the architecture and things like this. And of course, they leave a little donation for the water and the electric and things like that. But it's a really nice activity to go do. So I'll take you around the forest temple, which is one particular type of temple. Then we get in the trucks, we go up the mountain and we usually go to this hill tribe restaurant where we eat lots of good food. In this hill tribe restaurant, they have a really thick menu with lots of different options. And if they don't have something that you like, they'll go find it somewhere for you. But I'm pretty sure they're going to have what you like because it's a really thick menu. But I've seen in rare situations where somebody was interested in something something and they didn't have it and they went and got it somewhere else, right? So you'll be well fed, right? So then after we eat, then we go into the the Wat Doi Sutep, which is up on the mountain. It's completely different type of temple than the forest temple. So visiting two different temples on the same day, I'll be able to show you things that are the teachings of the Buddha at each temple. And I'll be able to show you things that aren't the teachings of the Buddha at each temple. And this is the way to actually learn the teachings to be able to see the path more clearly is to be able to see the things that are the teachings and that aren't the teachings. Then what we usually do is we share the cost of the transportation. Usually the students share it among themselves. Usually I don't pay because you guys would end up just giving me a donation and I would just give it back or something like that. Um, And I'm just going there to help you guys. I'm not going for my own benefit. So usually by the time we divide it up amongst however many people that are here, it's usually about two or 300 baht per person for the transportation, which is actually less than if you did it for yourself because you're sharing the transportation. And then there's a little bit of for your lunch. You might spend you know, 200 baht, 300 baht on your lunch or something like that. And then there's water and juice and snacks along the way. So you don't have to load up a big backpack or anything like that. If you just have a little bit of money in your pocket and you come on the journey, you'll be just fine. You'll have everything you need along the journey. And as I mentioned, we usually get back here around 4.30 or 5, depending on traffic. And that's our day. And you'll get to learn a whole bunch about the teachings of the Buddha, spend time with each other. It's kind of like a classroom without walls, right? We'll just walk around the temple and I'll be teaching you guys all kinds of things, a classroom without walls, right? You guys have been sitting around for four days. It'll be nice to get out and move your legs and get some exercise and stretch and all that kind of stuff. Any questions? Yeah. We usually finish there around 11.30 to 12. 
Um, I give you guys a choice at the end of the temple, like, okay, would you like to leave now and go to lunch? Or would you like to go extend the the tour for another 15, 20 minutes? And I'd make that decision in the present moment with you guys uh, based on how you're feeling with food. So we'll, so it's around 11.30 or 12 is when we finish that first temple. If you went with us and you would like to leave midday, you can leave no problem. There's plenty of transportation around. I would just ask that whatever portion you can share for the shared transportation, just give it to one of your classmates. So, cause what we do is at the end, when we get back, people put the money in for the shared transportation. So if you've given your money to somebody, then they can put it into the pot for the shared transportation. Any other questions on our field trip? Yep. Oh, okay. Are you on the calendar or are you on the, uh, on the classes, courses, retreats page? Okay, go all the way down towards the bottom, the classes, courses, and retreats. And you'll see the one that says developing a life practice to attain the first stage of enlightenment. We can maybe look at it uh, when we take a break. I'll show you. Yep, it's on there. You can also scan that QR code over there and it'll take you right to it. You can do it that way too. Mm -hmm. Okay, any, any other questions on continued support? Okay, so let me share with you guys our activity for the afternoon. It's two o'clock, so we have about an hour left uh, for class. And usually what we do for the last day is now that you guys have been learning with me throughout the week, there needs to come a time where you start transitioning the things that I've shared with you into your daily life. That's how you're going to get to enlightenment, right? In four or five days, you're not going to get to enlightenment. So this meditations, the Eightfold Path and all these things, you're going to need to start integrating them into your life. And now, even though each afternoon I usually initiate meditation and say, okay, I'm going to do guided meditation. You guys are welcome to do this. This afternoon, it's up to you, whatever you would like to do, right? You can do meditation if you like, seated, lying, standing, walking. Uh, you've learned all those different things. You can do that if you like. You can ask questions related to the path to enlightenment. If there's certain things throughout the week that you, know, you still need clarity on or certain things you would like to ask questions about, whether it's the five precepts or the Eiffel path or what have you, you can ask those questions, kind of like a free form question. Some students like to practice generosity to develop merit and kind of clean up the temple. We usually do that on the last day since we've been here all week. We usually get out the brooms, the mobs, we clean the bathroom, we clean the floor, we dust, we fill up the water, we sweep the hallway. Uh, last class, they even went out and started cleaning the temple at large because we've been using the temple at large too. So we cleaned up the sidewalks and some of the Buddha statues and we extended it even beyond the classroom. So that's another thing you can do. And you can do all these things if you like. Uh, and not everybody has to do the same thing because you could also just decide to leave too. That's your choice, right? So it's the natural law of gammas. Whatever you choose, it's your life, your decisions, your results. So these are all the different options that you guys can decide. And I'll give you guys some time to think about it while I'm sharing this with you. Is here at the end of the class, I like to practice some more generosity. Of course, I've been practicing generosity throughout the week by sharing the teachings with you, but I have a little gift for each one of you guys that you've now made it to the end of the class. I have a, a little picture for you. This picture of the Buddha that I use that's back there on the back wall, and you see it on all the different things and even the slide here, 
This is a picture that was commissioned by a temple that they looked at the original teachings of the Buddha and the artist did this artwork of the Buddha to depict what he looked like during his life. Because all the statues that you see, this isn't actually what the Buddha looked like during his life. The people who started making statues, they were making them about two or 300 years after his life. And none of those people lived during the lifetime of the Buddha. And they didn't look at the original teachings to make those statues. They just started making him in the way that they thought he appeared. So that's why he has that crown on his head and he looks uh, you know, very royal you know, in those statues. But this is what he looked like. He looked like a human being, just like you and I. So what I like to do is I like to give you a gift of this picture that you can take with you and you can hang up on your wall and, uh, or you can give it away to somebody else. I don't have any expectation of what you do with this gift. You can do with it whatever you like. Uh, you can give it to the, the housekeepers at your hotel. You can give it to your friends or family, or you can hang it up. And if you hang it up, perhaps what this picture can do for you is humanize a Buddha that you can see that a Buddha, an enlightened being, is a human being just like you, just like me. And just like he got to enlightenment as a human being, you can get to enlightenment as a human being as well. So if you humanize a Buddha and you see that a Buddha is very human, they laugh, they joke, they have fun, they pick their nose, they fart, they urinate, they defecate, just like you, right? All these different things. Then you know that, okay, if a Buddha can get to enlightenment, you can get to enlightenment too. And at the very least, if you have this picture hanging somewhere, maybe it'll remind you to meditate. Maybe it'll remind you to use right speech. Maybe you're talking on the phone to your mom and you're feeling this anger come up and you look over and you see the picture of the Buddha and you cut that off and you let it go, right? And you start practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech. So I have these for you. My son actually rolled them up and they just happen to look like a diploma. So you might think about it that way. So if you would, if you would like one of these, uh, I'm going to take a break for a few moments. And if you would like one of these, uh, you're welcome to come up and, and I will give you this. You can take it with you. It travels very nicely. You can do whatever with it that you like. It's just me practicing generosity to you to help you to humanize a Buddha and to maybe have a reminder to meditate and practice some right speech and things like that. So I would like to end with if you guys have practiced any generosity with me throughout the week or throughout the years, I know some of you guys bought me lunch this week. I would like to just offer my appreciation and gratitude for your support because your support helps me to help you and help many people around you. So I know some of you guys have probably put something in our donation box or you plan to at some point or whatever. I don't expect anybody to ever support me in any particular way. I'm here to support you and help you and guide you on the path regardless of what you ever do in your life or what you don't do in your life. But I would like to just share my appreciation and gratitude for any generosity that you've shared with me. So thank you all for your support. And whatever you guys would like to do with your remaining time, I'll be here to help you guys to do that. Okay, so Sawadee Kaap, and perhaps we'll see you guys tomorrow. And um, if you would like to do any of these things, I'll be here to support you with those. Okay, so be well, and uh, we'll see you another time. Okay. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.